Hello, everyone. My name is Kanai Kapadia. I'm the president and chief analyst of KGK and Company. KGK is a strategic management consultancy that helps middle market companies align with their best growth opportunities, overcome their more challenging operational frustrations, and ultimately to grow their earnings. If you're intrigued by the idea of a firm that wants to be a profit center rather than a cost center for your business, use the link in the show notes to connect with me. So, Margaret, thank you very much for joining Hindsight and sharing your knowledge today. It's a pleasure. It's an honor. Thank you for asking me. It's great to be here on this Thursday morning. Yeah, I'm excited to learn more about your background and some of the things you've learned through being in the driver's seat. Can you start by telling us the story of how you came to lead Shapira and Raj and then now the Executives Club of Chicago? Yes, it's a little ironic because I have a PhD in sociology and I studied life course theory and my advisor, one of his big concepts and things that he studied was planfulness over the life course. And in reflection, I've been the least planful person (laughs) throughout my career. I just was not a very good planner. I wanted to do so many things in my life. And so I just did things that I wanted to do and then would take the pivot at every turn. So I have a very unusual path. As I mentioned, so I first wanted to be a clinical psychologist and I worked in a psychiatric hospital and realized that really wasn't for me, but I knew there was something I wanted to do. And so I was in graduate school at University of Chicago. I was getting a master's that was a multidisciplinary master's in social sciences And I took a sociology course and just everything opened up for me. And I thought, this is what I really want to do. So then I went and got a PhD in sociology and I thought I was going to be a professor. That was it. Mm -hmm. And I had a job for about nine months between when my master's program ended. And then I had to wait to apply for graduate school. And Mm -hmm. that job at this market research firm called Leo J. Shapiro and Associates. And I loved it. I loved everything about it. But, you know, I kind of had this idea. I wanted to get a PhD. So I did that. And I finished the PhD and did my postdoc and had some tenure track offers. And I just had this moment in my gut of, I just don't think this is for me. I had had a taste of the corporate world. I really liked the pace of it, how productive it was. I was doing research and publishing in many ways, right? I was doing marketing Mm -hmm. studies and publishing for my clients and they would read them and act on the results. And we'd have conversations about what to do about it. It was very rewarding. And I spent all this time doing research and publishing and presenting at conferences. And maybe a hundred people might've read what you wrote. And it just did not feel as fulfilling and rewarding. And I also had the sense of that potential career path wasn't really going anywhere. I could always do something like that later, but if I wanted to try to make a go of it in a corporate job, I needed to do that now. You know, I was 21 mm-hmm. when I got my PhD and I thought I don't have that much more time. So I left and did a huge switch mm-hmm. and went on then the corporate job market. And I remember I was back in Chicago for fourth round McKinsey interview for the Chicago office at McKinsey. And I, again, had this feeling in my gut, you know, it's more a formality, the fourth round, they take you to, to lunch and And I thought, I don't want to be a consultant. I don't want to be on the road and flying around. And I was back in Chicago and I was thinking, what did I love most? And I loved most my little nine month job doing market research. So I called them and said, do you remember me? I'm in Chicago. 
here's what's going on. I don't want to become a McKinsey consultant. Would you ever be interested in talking about possibly taking me back? And I walked over there that day and we had lunch and then it all went from there. So I ended up having a 12 year career there and it was great. So I, probably my second or third year, we got a pharmaceutical client. It was the first one we'd ever gotten. We were largely consumer retail package. That was really the bread and butter. And it was Mm -hmm. a pharmaceutical client who just felt like the research and insights they were getting weren't great, particularly among patients. And they thought, well, maybe we should start looking at some of these really good consumer firms instead of these more traditional healthcare pharma firms, people who really understand consumers. And so we did one project with great success. And then they hired us for another one. And I really loved it. And I thought, you know, we have some pharmaceutical companies in our backyard. This was a New Jersey-based company. And then we went and pitched them. And I kind of created a a whole new line of business there. And then with the owners of the firm, we decided to really make a go of it. And so we started a new company called Carbon6 that was all pharmaceutical pre-launch market research insights and strategy. And it was wonderful. And we had, I'd say, 10 of the top 15 global pharmaceutical companies as our clients, things were going really well. And then we got bought by a single owner and a lot changed then. When you get acquired, there are different goals and objectives that the people of farming you have. And so our brand got killed. Everything got rolled up into a global parent brand and we lost a lot of our meaning and identity, but I stayed. And then I helped with the roll up and then I became president of the whole firm now. So not just the company mm-hmm. that I was running and I did it for the years and it was really good. But then at some point I almost felt like I was demoted in a weird way. You know, I was now running something bigger than what I was doing before, but I felt like I wasn't really running things. I was an operating president, but for an owner who was really calling the shots versus what I was doing before when it was my company and it was smaller, but I was running it. And so I just knew that I wanted to run something and it didn't have to be huge, but I need elbow room. I need headroom. I have things I want to do. I have vision and I need to be able to be unleashed and, and go with it. We parted ways very well. And the whole plan was I was going to start my own company again after a year, but I had a non-compete. I was very respectful of and was sitting it out. And two weeks into the non-compete, all these people start saying, you're available. What's going on? There's this thing. And I had a couple of people approach me about this thing. I'm like, what is this thing? But we can't tell you. It's confidential. And the more I got into it. And so the rest is went through the whole process. And here I am. And again, felt like just like before with a, a academic career, Hanging my shingle, starting another boutique firm, that opportunity is not going anywhere. I can always do that. But this was such a unique opportunity, does not come along all that often at a time where I was available. And so what I said to myself was, if they do offer it to me, I need to take it. I need to at least try this. I guess the big lessons in that is just take opportunities, you know? So I know that people have had tremendous careers and probably people that you've interviewed because they have been focused. And I know there's a lot about what to say no to. And I know Warren Buffett is a big proponent of that. There are people who have wild success because they, you know, the hedgehog principle, they go all in, they say no to everything else and they're focused and they go. Mine was the opposite. Just say yes to things, not knowing where it would take me. And that worked out for me. And so I think, you know, it could have also gone horribly and not worked out, but it did 
work out and I'm really grateful for it. But it is interesting to think about, you know, if I was more planful, if I was more focused, you know, where would I have been? Who knows? Yeah. So when you do the calculus on uh, your doppelganger, if you will, right, would it have been better to be a little more planful or are you quite pleased with taking the opportunities as they've come to you? So I've never really had good mentorship in my life. And I'm first generation college. So not only first generation college, but then got a PhD. And so I really did not have people in my life that could guide me. And so I think my children will have different opportunities. And I think that if I was raised and surrounded with people who were more business oriented and were able to help me think through early on, think about your life 20 years from now. What do you want it to look like? How will you get there? But I just never had any of that. So I was really winging it. And so I do think that if I had had better mentorship and guidance, I think I would have built my own company and built it stronger. There were a lot of mistakes I made when I was starting that company in terms of contracting and getting things in writing and the fact that I ended up in this position where we got bought and I was not in a position of power and had to negotiate again. But again, I just did not have good mentors along the way. I think... It's just so important. I know we talk about this all the time. This is not a new concept, but I can say personally how crucial it is to have mentors, sponsors, people who are going to help you along the way. And this is why we still have a lot of underrepresented classes, you know, not making it because again, I'm very white and privileged. I'm not suggesting that I'm not, but I didn't have that. And so imagine if you just don't have people in your ecosystem that even know how to show you how to even apply to college, right? And so these things just compound and compound. And so I think I'm so hardworking and ambitious with a small A that I just kept going and it worked out. But you could see for some people how it would dead end at some point. Yeah. I think I firsthand also came to realize the value of mentorship. And so I'm curious now that you've seen the promised land, so to speak. How have you surrounded yourself with mentors? Yes. So these last two years in this role, I have expanded my network so incredibly and have met most tremendous people and the most like generous, kind, mentoring people who are really high up there and are very willing to give of their time. So now I'm in an interesting situation where there will be something else for me after this, right? So I'm not interviewing or anything. I mean, I'm going to definitely be here for a little while, but there will be something else. And I need to start thinking about that. And I think honesty and transparency are what have really gotten me through. So I've been really honest and transparent with my board, you know, and saying, I love this. Don't worry, I'm not going anywhere, but there will be something else after this. And so can you help me think about what that could be. And the response that I've gotten, that was a scary conversation, right? Most people don't want to have that conversation with their chair of their board or CEO. You don't want to suggest somehow that you're not committed, but it was a very vulnerable, but transparent and honest conversation. You can be committed and also think about what you might want to do later on. And so then the outreach that I've gotten from the board from that has been just wonderful. Like, We think you're great. We want you to ultimately do something great from here. How can we help you? It's in everyone's best interest to have you be here and also be happy doing whatever it is you're going to do next in the timeline that makes sense for you. And we want to help that. 
So you've cultivated the board into your mentors. Right. And you just have to ask. I mean, I think people just get afraid to ask. I think they get intimidated by someone with such a high title. I, mean, I can tell you some of the most down-to-earth, normal people I've met are the biggest CEOs I've met. Some of the most pompous, arrogant, not helpful people I've met are like the small-time CEOs who think that they're so big. It's like you have, you know, <laughs> that's great. You've been successful. But really, I mean, it's been some of the most successful people, some of the most real and helpful and honest. And I think people get intimidated. You get afraid to ask. You think, oh gosh, they're too big or... I'm too little for them. Or how could I even ask someone like that something of this? And we're all human. We all want to help. And they may say no because they really can't do it. But one of my biggest mantras is just ask. Just ask. You never know. The answer could be no, but sometimes it's not no. And it's definitely no if you don't ask. Yeah, yeah, So I'm really big at just always asking. You'd be surprised sometimes what the answer is. I mean, I've been shocked sometimes at the yeses I've gotten thinking, did not think that was going to be a yes. So right. <laughs> Likewise. But I think you certainly achieved that when you were starting the pharma practice and getting 10 of the top 15 pharma companies in the world as clients is, requires just asking and a whole lot more, I imagine, right? Well, and there's a lot of show me, don't tell me too, right? So you ask, but the ask is backed by evidence and your history and your record. And so... I think that's just so important. I'm also a big show me, don't tell me person. I haven't had to use so many words because it's been clear based on what I've done or how I've acted and my integrity and my record. And you don't have to explain too much. They get it. Yeah. You've learned a lot along the way, and I appreciate you sharing so much. Can you talk about a specific personal development crossroad? You know, maybe it was leadership style or something more nuanced, but something that was a major crossroad for you where it moved you to the next level and was not just impactful for you and the relationship you had with people, but it materially affected the business? Yeah. I think a lot of people, myself included, who are really good at what they do, have a difficult time sometimes letting go. You think no one does it as good as you do. That was really limiting to me. And so my business wasn't growing as quickly as it could have because I kept feeling like I needed to do so much that even though the people working for me were really good, it wasn't the way I wanted it done. And so as a result, I was really limited. I think a lot of people struggle going from that kind of individual contributor level to a leader and how you do that. A lot of teams start like this. And you'd have to do this. And I struggled along the way. And I got an executive coach that helped me a lot. And once I was able to really let go of some of that, develop my team, I was able to go farther and faster. And I think I'm a huge fan of Dan Ariely and all of the behavioral economists. And something that he said in one of his writings that was a huge lightning bolt for me was the more you continue to say, I'm just going to do it myself. Like it's going to take me more time to train you than do it myself. Right. So let me just do it. Like whatever, it takes you too long. It'll take me 10 minutes. I'll just do it. Every time you do that, you are devaluing your future time. And so yes, in the moment that seems like a rational calculation, 
time spent, output, effort put in, all the economic models, but you're devaluing your next 30 years of time. So if you would just invest in getting them to be able to do it, that is all the time you have freed up from yourself now for the next 10, 20, 30 years. That was a huge turnaround for me to think about. I was so short-sighted. I was going kind of like project by project. Well, what's the best use of my time right now? Instead of thinking real long-term, how do Mm -hmm. I invest now in developing my team and getting them to where they need to be so that I don't have to be doing these things in two years? Yeah. I'll call it delegating. I realize it's a more complicated scenario than that. But as you started delegating, did you see your own learning move faster, your own growth? Yes. And it was really less about like my own growth, but it freed up space for me to start thinking about more. You know, I think a lot of CEOs, they talk about the need to have kind of a clear mind and a free mind, and they will set aside entire days where there is nothing on their calendar. So they can just think with an uncluttered mind and start to envision and plan. And that's what it was freeing me up and allowing me to do. I wasn't just so busy. I was so focused on just the day-to-day that I wasn't really thinking strategically and long-term. I needed to create time and space to be able to do that. And honestly, that's a big part of why I resigned. I was having a really hard time. I had two little kids at the time. I mean, I still do. It wasn't that long ago. I was having a really hard time running the company, being true to the company and the employees, giving them everything that they needed of me and giving my clients everything they needed of me and giving my family everything they needed of me and then giving my career aspiration and hopes and dreams what it needed for me. And that kept coming in last. And that's not the kind of thing that you can just put on your calendar for an hour. Okay, I'm going to spend between 10 and 11 thinking about what I want to do next. It doesn't work that way. And so it became really clear to me that if I really wanted to do something else, I needed to create the time and space to allow for that. And the decision for me was I have to resign. It's not fair to the employees, the clients. I can't be carving into running this company to do that. That's not fair to anyone. And then it's amazing what happens when you create time and space. Just suddenly things start to enter. It's like dating in many ways. You have to put out there that you're available, right? And so I am 500% confident that if I had not resigned, no one would have approached me about this job because I was presenting myself to the world as this really accomplished, successful president of this company and loving what I was doing. No one would have thought to try to extricate me from that. But when I quit, it said to the world, oh, Margaret's available. And then people started to talking to me. No one started talking to me about like, what do you want to do next when I was in my job? You know, or I think there are lots of people in their jobs right now who are thinking about what they want to do next, but no one's talking to them about that because they look like, well, they're on the career path. They made partner. They seem happy. I'm not going to, why would you bother talking to them? You have no idea that beneath all that a year from now, I want to be doing something new and different. So can you imagine what could happen if you could kind of simultaneously communicate that to the world, but also stay in your job? You know, how wonderful that would be. I'm trying to do that now. That's what I'm trying to do with this transparency with my board is simultaneously say, I am in this 100%. Don't worry, I'm not distracted. I'm not going anywhere. But I'd also like to communicate to you that 
I am going to be available in a few years. I'm going to want to do something. So these things can both exist. It's not an either or. You know, in some ways, you delegated the task of thinking about what's next for you to your board and making some introductions is helping you explore it so you can stay focused on the executives club, right? That's a really interesting way to think about it. I hadn't thought of it that way, but you're right. Yeah. Yeah. And to your point, it's in everyone's interest to do what it is you're doing now, right? To share. And I would say many of the people who are still like early on their career path who are listening in on this, again, like honesty and transparency just are so crucial. And I think people are so afraid to let their managers in on any of this because, again, they think I might get fired if if they don't believe I'm 100% committed to this job. And I had a conversation with one of my key employees a few years ago who then ended up going on the pharmaceutical side. They went outside and became one of our biggest clients because of the tremendous relationship and how I helped them navigate that. And we just had great conversations of, okay, I get it. You are going to do something else eventually. Here's all I ask. Don't leave me in the lurch. Do not just give me two weeks notice. Let's keep talking about this. Let's make sure that when you do exit, the organization is prepared and that you're leaving us in a good position. And I'm going to help you do this because you are valuable to me and the organization. And I also want you to have an amazing life. And so there was such mutual respect and understanding so that they were so committed. They probably were working even harder than ever while simultaneously looking for what they wanted to do next. And then they gave me think like six weeks notice. And that's all I wanted, right? Like, let's not leave that lurch. And if we didn't have that really transparent conversation, they probably would have been on the job search secretively, and then they would have given their two weeks notice. And then I would have been in a really tough spot because my key employee was going to be gone in two weeks. And I've had people who have done that and they've even given one week's notice and it's left such a bad taste in my mouth. And I can't stress enough how important it is to leave your current position well, even if that means delaying your start. And employers will understand this. You know, when people mm-hmm. come back and say, well, but they really want me to start next Monday. They believe me, that person wants to know that you are the kind of employee that would not do this to them. So if you go to them and say, hey, I know you want me to start next Monday and I do too. I'm so excited about this opportunity, but I need to follow through on my commitments at my current organization. It's going to put them in a really tough spot if I do that. Can we work something out? I want to see things through. I want to be accountable and responsible. And I'm so excited to start. Yeah. Do you know what they would think of you? That How excited they're going to be about you, that you're handling it that way? But I, again, I think people are just afraid to do that. They kind of accept their suggested start date. They give their notice. They kind of burn a bridge there and yeah, not good to do. So again, honesty, transparency, the whole way through. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. So... It takes a personal relationship and a culture to make a person think in this way. It's certainly their own predilection in that regard, but it takes a certain culture where the person feels like I can tell this person without them feeling threatened, without the business feeling threatened, et cetera. Talk to me about culture and how you fostered that or any other changes that were required. But if you think about some of these organizations where you were able to do this, where people came to you and you went to others and shared this openly, what was it that made it possible, culturally speaking? I think it all comes from the top. And I realized I had this 
time in my career where I believed that I was very open, that my door is always open. I'm very transparent. And then I realized that people were not coming to me with things. And that really bothered me. And I thought, what am I doing wrong? Like, how do we not have like this speak up open culture when I'm so much that person? And what I realized as a sociologist, that your position really does matter. This is why I became a sociologist and not a psychologist, that we forget that these structures of power really do mean something. And so it doesn't matter how open and wonderful and friendly and helpful and generous you are. If you're seen as like the CEO, people are going to hesitate to come to you. So I realized, and I've had to learn this lesson a few times. I've had to continue to relearn it. I have to proactively start those conversations. I can't sit and say, well, I'm the kind of person that people are just going to come to and talk to and then expect that they're going to do that. I need to be keeping my finger on the pulse. I need to be opening the door to that conversation. So I tell my staff all the time, it's almost like a customer service message or, you know, when you get off the airplane, we know that you have a variety of airlines and we thank you for choosing to fly us today. Um, But I take that approach with my employees. You're so good. I know that there are a variety of companies that you could be working at right now. And I'm just so grateful that you are sharing your time and talent with us right now. And I am privileged to just be part of your career journey. I hope that it's here, but if it's not here, Wherever it is, I want to be part of this. So please, let's keep the conversation going. I hope that your career is incredibly rewarding and fulfilling here. But if at any point you feel that it's not, please come to me because I want to help you make that happen here. Or if it can't be here, to ultimately make it happen somewhere else. But your satisfaction and joy in career is really what's most important. So I need to start that conversation, that dialogue. So you also said earlier, you come from the school of show me, don't tell me. And so did people buy into this or did it take real showing them? So I need to keep starting the conversation. I mean, I still, even a couple weeks ago, there was something where someone didn't come to me and it just drove me nuts. And like, I kept thinking, what am I doing wrong? And then I remembered, no, there are structures of power and like, think about why they may not be coming to you with this. That's another thing. It's not always about you. I think that's a really important lesson. I think we often think like, what am I doing? Or why didn't they call me back? Did I did something wrong? And a lot of times it's really not about you. <laughs> it has nothing to do with you. And think about what else it could possibly be about. But I think too often we get into this, what about me? What did I do? What am I doing wrong? Instead of thinking about why some of this may be happening. Yeah. Self-perception versus understanding how others view you is it's a challenging thing. I also, I mean, something related to that, whenever we have in my past company, current company, whenever there's a challenge with an employee or something's not working right, I always say, let's first look at what the organization is doing wrong. Have we done something wrong in terms of our organizational structure, our communication, how we've set up this project, like start with the organization first then go to the individual. I think, again, so quickly people want to go to the individual. Well, they're being resistant. Okay, well, why might they be being resistant? What have we done organizationally? Ah, we haven't been transparent with our objectives. We never shared with them the rationale for why they need to do this. We just sent out a new policy, but without explaining all of the reasons why. I mean, it's usually 
an organizational failing first. It's not a problematic employee. If you yeah. get down to it, most of the time, I would say there's something organizationally and structurally. Of course, there's problematic employees. I mean, that that could be it too. Well, I'm always encouraging us to like, let's first understand the situation and what's the organization doing first before we blame the employee. Yeah. Is it fair to say that's the opposite of what most organizations do? They tend to find the person to blame. Yes. So this is my sociological training. I think there's a lot about being a sociologist that has really served me in this. And so getting things off the individual, right? Not just about the individual. And some Leo Shapiro, the founder of my original company, the greatest lesson he imparted on me was the best thing you could do for your career development is to make yourself obsolete. And I think that's very scary for people, but he was absolutely right. Because you have to think about the organization. So if you're the only one who knows how to do your job and you do it really well, sure, that's protective for you. But then think about from the organization's perspective, they're not going to move you out of that role. That's a risk to the organization. And so what you need to do is actually train someone to perhaps be even better than you, because then that frees you up to do more. And so I think a lot of times people hold on so much. They're afraid that, oh, if someone else knows how to do my job, then I'm going to be out of a job. But no, that actually creates now opportunity for you to go somewhere else. And I was often telling people along the way, I would love for you to have my job in two years. Like, let's figure that out. Because if you have my job in two years, that means I can go do something else in two years. I don't think managers ever convey that. And I think the idea is, well, I'll never get my manager's job. You know, they're holding on to it so tightly. And that's why we see a lot of lateral moves because people feel like, well, there's nowhere else for me to go. My manager is holding on so tight. If I can't take their role, then I got to go do something else. And I think that's a big failing. But that's risky. And it takes a lot of confidence and sense of that there will be something else for you to do. Yeah, there's never like one reason. Sometimes it's just not communicating. So you leave the elephant in the room, so to speak. Right. Let's talk about the business from a growth standpoint, from a performance standpoint. The Executives Club is obviously a non-for-profit, but still has its objectives and its aspirations and goals, right? Can you talk about the toughest business situation you've encountered while leading any one of these organizations? Yeah. Thank you for saying that. I always say that nonprofit is just a tax status. Like These are businesses. <laughs> They're all businesses. I think a lot of times people think of nonprofit as somehow different. It, it's a business. It just has a different tax status. I mean, it sounds really trite, but it is COVID. We are an in-person convening organization. Yeah. <laughs> so, I cannot think of other organizations besides restaurants that have been harder hit than the other organizations. So it was terrifying. Although when it first happened, none of us, you might have, when I say none of us, I mean none within the organization thought it would be going on this long. We really thought it was going to be kind of a short-term thing. So maybe not as completely terrifying had we known how long it was going to go on, but we just really thought things were going to be canceled for a couple months. And we had some really big things coming up that we were really disappointed to cancel. And I remember in hindsight, it's just so funny to think how naive we were because we were rescheduling things for April and May. 
and thought, well, we really wanted to push them to June. We thought June would be okay. And someone suggested we push them to fall and fall. Oh my gosh, that's so far away. And yeah. all right, fine. It never occurred to us that fall would not have been back to normal. And then the goalposts kept moving every month as we went along. And it's just funny to think about that. We thought that you know, everything was going to be back this fall. So I think any CEO who's been talking about this during this time, how they've really thrived through this has been really leaning into their purpose, you know? And so that's what we did when this hit, we said, okay, in-person events are an action, but they are one of our offerings, but our reason for being is not in-person events. What is our reason for being? And our reason for being is to connect and grow Chicagoland's business leaders. Well, you can connect and grow people in all sorts of ways. And what does the business community need now more than ever? They need to connect with each other. They need learning and sharing and how to navigate this whole thing and their businesses and PPP loans and the office and all of that. And so we started pulling together all of this programming and we had this last season 50% greater attendance than any previous year. I mean, we normally have around 10,000 people come through our events each season. We had 14,500. And most of that was in the last three months of the season. Our season runs July to June. So basically from March to June of that season, we just had tremendous events and attendance and it was all virtual. We created all these opportunities for people to connect and learn. And we had experts and residents and we also did everything for free. So we, again, leaned into our purpose. Our purpose is to do this for the Chicagoland business community. We're here to serve. We're here to help them. We're not charging for anything. We have not charged for a single thing since March. We do make some stuff available to the public too. And we also made a portion of that completely free. So we started making a whole lot of programming just free to anyone who wanted to attend. And that generated so much goodwill, really helped strengthen our brand. And we just started being seen as this essential resource to the business community. And people come to us all the time now. We get approached constantly. Here's a topic for a program we'd love to do it. Can we do this at the Executives Club? Which is not how it would always work before. You know, we would yeah. People and invite them to speak. And now we are seen as the place where people want to be. People ask us, can we do this? Can we talk to your members? Can you be a forum for the business community for us? We want to get the word out to the business community. You're the best place for us to do that. So we're going to continue to offer things for free all the way through the end of this season through June. And then hopefully we'll be back to some sort of small in person hybrid event model, you know, next fall. We'll see. I'm very bullish. I'm very hopeful, but we'll see. That's just gone a long way. Like we didn't worry about the money, which sounds crazy, you know, as a business and a nonprofit, but it's like, it wasn't about the bottom line right now. It was about serving our constituents, leaning into our purpose, delivering and the money. I believed that the money would eventually come and it did. It worked out. So from a performance standpoint, Businesses that have had a strong balance sheet have done well during this time period, right? And I agree with focusing on your purpose. And from a purely business standpoint, it's logical, right? Focus on the need that you were serving to begin with. How you were doing it doesn't matter. So 
did ultimately the numbers net out? Or if you look at it over a multi-year period, will the numbers net out? Is that how you're looking at it? Well, we cut costs extremely. So revenue was down. I mean, everyone went all in. I mean, everyone at the organization was aligned. I mean, we were, again, as a nonprofit, I mean, we would save $50. I mean, people were scrutinizing everything. So that was a big part of it. I mean, I should say that we had tremendous cost controls, but we have been net positive. We didn't technically lose money and we have lost some members for a variety of reasons. They've lost their jobs. Companies have freezes on spending and all of that, but we've also grown. I can't believe the number of new members we've gotten through all this because people have been introduced to us through all of this free stuff that we've been doing and said, this is a tremendous organization. I want to be part of this. So the fact that we have continued to grow and add new members, and it is because of that approach that we took. And so the cost cutting cannot be underestimated though. And we're still doing it. We are incredibly tight. I mean, people are saving every single penny. And so I do think long-term it will pay off. That is the bet that I'm making, but short-term it's also okay, but because of the cost constraints. Also, in-person events are incredibly expensive to throw. So for anyone who has not put on one of these kinds of events in a hotel ballroom, I mean, what you're paying for that horrible chicken salad and iced tea is extraordinary. So we also saved a lot of money not having to do that and doing everything virtual was a lot more cost effective for us. So that worked out too. But I think that just like the restaurants, I mean, it's similar there. I can't remember. Are you in Chicago? I don't. Yeah, yeah, I'm on the north side in Highland Park. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. When you think about what some of the Michelin star restaurants have done, they've been able to deliver this amazing food and experience in people's homes for far less money. But like, I mean, they're killing it. Alinea and all these restaurants, I mean, people are just getting it to go at home and it's par cooked and you finish it off and then you have this meal. I mean, there are some restaurants that have been doing really well by thinking of, okay, we can still do this. People aren't going to come to our restaurant, but like we did for Thanksgiving, we did Girl and the Goat. And Stephanie Izzard did this whole thing. You picked up the turkey, all the ingredients. It was all of her recipes. It was really neat. And I mean, I have to say it was the best Thanksgiving dinner we've ever had. And I hope that they continue to do that. I hope that these restaurants continue with these things that they have innovated because of COVID because it was an incredible Thanksgiving meal. And they never did that before, right? They didn't even occur to them to help people cook their Thanksgiving dinners. They were all about what happens in the restaurant. And now that we've expanded, I mean, and Girl in the Grove is growing. A lot of these restaurants are growing. Of course, many have been tremendously hard hit. I don't mean to suggest that the entire industry is thriving. And I know that many have hurt and lost their businesses. And it's very sad. But I think there are some who have been able to figure this out. Yeah, by focusing on their purpose. Right. And just getting outside of, okay, it's not about the restaurant. What is this about? It's about food and experiences. And food and experiences are infinite, right? A restaurant is finite. An event in a hotel ballroom is finite. But an experience of knowledge sharing and connecting and learning and meeting people, that's infinite. That's a growth mindset, right? Yeah, absolutely. 
at the same time that you're cutting costs, you have to make some decisions to invest. Yes. What investments have you guys made during the pandemic at the same time that you're removing things that don't benefit the customer, the organization, the employees? So much more technology. So there are some things that we had been wanting to do and it's just got accelerated, but becoming more of a data-driven organization. So we were relying so much on people and we were under leveraging our data and under leveraging technology and automation. So those are the things that we've really been investing in. And what we're thinking about now is also technology for this hybrid world. And so we have a lot of strategic planning sessions coming up because I don't think we should go back to how we used to do things. We have this saying around the club, well, that's going to die with COVID. There were things that we were doing just because, yeah, it's kind of how we always did it. And we are reevaluating everything. I mean, it's a brave new world. And so there are a lot of things that we weren't doing for very good reason. They're dying with COVID. And so we kind of have this running list of things around the office. Yeah, well, that's going to die with COVID. We're not bringing that back. And so it's just wonderful to have this clean slate opportunity that when we do reemerge, what do we want it to be like? I mean, it's almost like a startup mentality that we have. We're rebranding right now. We're redoing our bylaws. Like we've really taken it as opportunity. Like let's just re-envision this whole thing. We're a little bit quiet. Things are a little bit different. Let's create this organization for what we actually want it to be for the decade of the 2020s instead of this is a 110 year legacy organization. As you can imagine, there are a lot of legacy things that you just inherit, keep doing because. And so we have this wonderful opportunity to have this startup mentality, right? This Let's start from scratch. So bylaws are getting completely redone. Events are getting completely re-envisioned. Why and how we do things. We also, our 10-year lease is up on June 30th. So we have this amazing gift to rethink our office space. So everything is getting re-envisioned for the future. Again, nothing changed in terms of our mission, our vision, our purpose, our mission statement, who we are and what we do, but how we execute on it is going to look very different. Yeah. So it's a great gift. I mean, I think there were a lot of things I wanted to do that I felt my hands were tied because I didn't want to completely disrupt this institution. What's an example? There was a lot of formality and pomp and circumstance to our events that were a relic and a holdover, probably back to the 80s and 90s. I mean, two CEOs before me even opened the event with a gavel and very formal. And there was like a processional and an announcement of things and just a a dais, you know, kind of a very formal presentation of things that I don't think is working in the year 2021. And right. Young emerging leaders. That's just some of them would come to our events and say, what is this? this is- yeah. But I understand why we did it. And we can still keep the spirit of what we were doing and why we were doing it, but it can look different and modern and fresh and still feel good. Yeah. Can you go back to technology and talk about specifically, you talked about analytics, you talked about, well, I imagine we've all purchased Zoom licenses, but can you give us a little more detail on 
what technology, how you've used it, et cetera? So we went through this really amazing strategic planning session with KPMG. The woman, Linda Monti, she's the head of the Chicago office. She's on my board and they've just been incredibly generous. And so their whole ignition lab, she lent all the resources to us and we went through all these exercises. And one of them was to think about two things. What would Facebook do and what would Disney do? Because Facebook is very much about connecting people, right? And sharing. And then Disney is much about this like experience and events. And so you think about two brands that do those two things extremely well. And that opened our eyes so much. And what we learned from a thought experiment through Facebook was Facebook tells you, it suggests to you things that you may like. It suggests to you people who are like you. Like it starts to expose you to things that you wouldn't even think of yourself. You don't have to do the work. It does a lot of the work for you. Hey, based on this, you may actually be interested in this person or this group. And then you think, wow, that's amazing. I'm so glad that I know of this. That didn't even occur to me. So we should and could be doing that with our membership, right? Our members are there to connect and meet other people. We historically have made them do all the work. You have to come to the event, you have to work the room. And what could it look like if we could start matching members and like the more that we know about them and suggest pairings, right? Say, hey, here's someone else who does something similar to you on the client side. You may want to meet them, not force it, but you know, it suggests things. Also events that you may want to attend because we do a lot of events, a lot, a lot. And so some of our emails get missed. I mean, some stuff is just not on people's radar. And after the fact, they'll be incredibly disappointed that they missed something. Think, gosh, I'm so bummed I missed that. I know I got the email. I didn't open it. But if we knew that this event was something you definitely wanted to be at because of what you did, we could have and will now going forward do a different targeted email campaign to those people, right? Like, hey, really pay attention to this. This event is actually for you. I know we do a hundred things a year and you come to what you can, but like red lights, warning signs, pay attention to this one, you individual person. And I think that would go really far too. Mm -hmm. So that's some of the stuff that we're starting to implement. And the way that it came up in the session was they said, you know, kind of Tinder for the executives club. But what they meant was this idea of, can't you kind of have some sort of a, a lookbook or something where it's like, oh, I'm interested in that. Oh, this person looks interesting. I'd like to meet them. I mean, not actually this idea of Tinder, but it kind of got the moniker of Tinder at the executives club. And so when that's in a deck somewhere, whenever it gets presented or the board seat, people are like, what are you, wait, wait, what's going on? What are you talking about? Like, no, 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 not literally Tinder at the executives club. We're not making, but just that concept and that idea, right? Yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense. And to be honest, what's going through the back of my mind as we talk here is, so I've been an executives club member in the past and I try different organizations and stuff. And honestly, what's coming through my mind is, well, shoot, maybe I have to go back and look at all the executives club emails. And this sounds interesting. And the personalization, if I could call it that, of the events and the content and stuff, it makes complete sense. I'm a member of a lot of organizations too. So I'm a member of YPO, the Economic Club, Chicago Network, a few things. What everyone always tells you is, well, you'll get out of it what you put into it. And I get it. And that is true. And we used to have that mindset too. But that's a bit of a cop-out. And you have to think about 
your stakeholders and how busy they are. And we all know that we're going to get out of things what we put into it, but we just don't have time. And what we want is people to make it easy for us, right? So make it easier for your members to get out of it more. So I think a pre-COVID mindset would be, well, we're sending you our emails. You're not taking the time to read them. Sorry, you missed it. A customer service oriented mindset is, I need to make it real easy for you to get out of this what you need. And so I need to tailor and personalize for you. Look, you can't come to much. Here's the three things you should come to this year because these are the three things that are right in your wheelhouse. And so I'm going to just send an email to you about those. I'm not going to make you do the work. Yeah. And so we just make people do a lot of the work under this mindset of we've made it all available to you. It's all here. Go figure it out. And people tell us that all the time that they had no idea how much the club offered and just what they were underutilizing. But again, look at the organization. So then I see that as a failing on us. It's not a failing on the member because they didn't take advantage of it all. We didn't make it easy for them. We made it too hard for them to figure this all out. Mm -hmm. Because there's been this mindset of, we do all this amazing stuff. And we do. We do so much amazing stuff. But what I have to keep telling people, there was this great teachable moment where, you know, even some board members who just weren't aware of something and the team was shocked. You know how many times we've told them? And so they get defensive, right? I told them. I, I told them. They were defensive. I told them. I said, stop. I know you told them. But the fact that you told them and the fact that they're not aware, those two things can simultaneously exist. You know, those are not mutually exclusive concepts. And so what we learned about this, we've learned, you know, the CEOs who are on our board have probably 500 things that are more important than this. And so you can't just send them an email and say, well, we let them know about it. So like, if it's something that you think is important, how can you better get that message to them? Well, we sent the email. Well, okay. <laughs> but that just not enough. And so again, just like this real customer service mindset. Yeah. I think goes really far. Yeah. And so um when you thought about what would Disney do, what did you guys learn? Just delight and really about the audience experience. And so that became really important that there were a lot of things that we were doing to kind of make our sponsors happy or what we thought we were making assumptions about what we thought the board wanted or needed, but some of those things were happening at the expense of the audience experience. And it's really, yes, our sponsors are so important to us, but we can simultaneously, again, it's not either or, it's an event, deliver what our sponsors want and make it a customer delight experience for the audience. And we were too often just defaulting to, we just have to do this for the sponsors because they're the ones that are ultimately paying for it and the things can coexist. So just opening our minds and starting to talk to the sponsors about really what is it that you want and what are the multiple ways that we can deliver on this? Because we also want to make the event and every attendee feel as important as you. So like a perfect example is big sponsor tables are in the front, then there's sponsor tables, and then there's corporate purchase tables. And you know what would happen if you were an individual member of the club and bought an individual ticket, you sat all the way in the back. So yeah. what are we telling you? We're telling you that you are less important than these other people. 
you get a table in the back. And I was really trying to break this up my first year. So we're not doing this. Member tables have to go near the front. Everyone was so resistant. Oh, but then what about our sponsors? They're giving us all this money. Their tables need to be in the front. And I kept saying, let's talk to them. They will understand. Let's explain to them the situation and what's happening. And like, how can we do this in a way where we can have both be happy? Luckily, that's something that's dying with COVID. I don't think people want these 10 top tables. People want a different experience. So even this whole kind of table model, I think, is going to go away with COVID. I mean, it'll probably still exist in some form. We're still working on it. But that's a perfect example of something that we really needed to mix up. And COVID's giving us this great opportunity. There was so much resistance and fear among the team to do anything to disrupt the way we were currently doing something. And so here we are. We've been disrupted. We can do it all now. Right. Wonderful. This has been a thrilling conversation. I do have to end with a very predictable question, though, given the the show is called Hindsight. If you had to do it all over again, what would you have done differently? I would be more planful. I was like this kind of tree just floating in the wind. Like I was taking wherever things were taking me, I was going. And that's great too. And I, obviously it's worked out. But I think if I would have taken the time to really think about where do I want to be in 20 years and then work backward and think about then what does that mean about certain decisions that I should be making now and then still be open and opportunistic, but have more of a long-term vision. I've been very much like living my life in like three to five year increments. I just kept thinking, okay, well, what's the next three to five years look like? And what's the next three to five years going to look like? Now what's the next three to five years going to look like? I didn't take the totality of it and then also do the short term. So like the long term and the short term. Most businesses have gone from super long range plans to shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter, right? And now it's almost to the extent where can you really plan more than 12 or 18 months out? So my big question for you is how's it going with your 20 year plan right now? Have you been able to nail something down? Yes, this is what's so interesting. Yeah, what's so challenging too. If we had been disrupted and then the world was permanently changing, we'd be set and ready to go, right? We have figured out this virtual environment. But now here we are having to completely re-envision again because, nope, this is actually short-term. And now we're going to move into this new hybrid model. And so the team is a little tired. I mean, it's the constant, it's kind of organizational whiplash, right? We're going this way, we're going this way, we're going this way, we're going this way. And I don't like that. And I was really frustrated with that at my last organization. We had a lot of organizational whiplash. There was not long-term vision. And so it is very challenging right now to have a long-term plan because the future is so unpredictable. If I knew what the world was going to look like, I could do it. But I just don't know. I don't know when we're going to get back to in-person. I don't know how large our events are going to be. I don't know what the demand for in-person events are going to be. But I do know it's going to be different than now. So it's just scenario planning. I mean, I think that's really what we're doing and having to just remain flexible and innovative. And the technology is changing constantly too, right? I mean, Zoom is not what Zoom was when this hit in. And there are more players coming on the market. There's this really cool startup called Sidebar that we've been playing with that is really neat. So 
I think we have to just keep staying top of all the innovations and there is never going to be a set it and forget it mentality. We were really set it and forget it before. Figure out what works and then just repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat. That's the business model. That's scalable. Just keep doing it. And we're just not in that situation right now. We have to expect that something new and better is around the corner constantly. And we're going to have to keep doing that. So we can't set it and forget it. And I think set it and forget it is really comforting and nice. That's what people want because I just want to be able to do my job. And I think some members of our team have been really stretched because it is an entrepreneurial startup mindset and model that we've all been thrown into. And not everyone wants that. And that's not the organizational structure that they want to be in and are really thriving in. So I really commend them. They've all just you know, gotten on board and they're really doing the best they can. Yeah. I think we've all learned who has the energy and enthusiasm to really figure things out in our organizations. So Margaret, it was wonderful talking to you. I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Hindsight. If you lead a business or are a student of business, this show is for you. Please subscribe and tune in for a new episode each week. My name is Kanai Kapadia, and this show is produced by KGK and Company, the fast emerging strategic consultancy to middle market businesses. You can find us online at www.kgkcompany.com. That's kgkcompany.com. Have a good one, folks, and I'll talk to you next week.